Hey everyone, this is Sadia Khan and welcome back to another episode of Immigrantly. As always, I hope you're all doing well and enjoying your day so far. So my day was rather hectic. I drove back from the city just a few minutes ago and I'm a bit tired, but I'm so psyched about today's conversation. Now, if you are new to the podcast, you could not have chosen a better day to learn what we are all about here. Today's episode is all about immigrant workers. And if you've heard even 5 seconds of American politics on the news, then you know this is a controversial topic. And you know what? I don't want to shy away from the controversy. You know that, right? So I want to start today's episode by asking all of you some tough questions to get your minds turning before we speak with our next guest. I often hear these questions floating around in the media and I want to know what you think. So, ready? Is it ever okay to deport undocumented immigrant workers? Should immigrant workers receive the same financial assistance from the government as US citizens? Are immigrant workers quote unquote taking American jobs? And lastly, is immigration a human right? Now many of you listening are probably rolling your eyes because you've heard these questions before. I get it. Trust me, I get it. A part of me also deflates when I listen to these questions all the time. But that's why it's so important to address, unpack and tell stories that challenge these prevalent media narratives that dehumanize the immigrant identity. That is precisely the work our today's guest is doing in his new book. Today I am joined by Saket Soni, a labor organizer and a human rights activist originally from Delhi, India. He is currently the co-founder and executive director of Resilience Force, an organization that strengthens and supports the millions of workers who help repair the damage of climate disasters. After a hurricane, for example, someone has to clean up, fix the roads, reconstruct buildings, things of that nature. And let's be honest, the way climate change looks, we need an organization like this now more than ever. But Saket is also the author of a new book titled The Great Escape: A True Story of Forced Labor and Immigrant Dreams in America. It came out in January of this year and this authentic, very true story sheds light on the darker side of labor rights in America. It's the story of labor camps, horrendous working conditions and the fight for justice. And it also addresses those questions I asked you in the beginning. So Saket's book is another fantastic story that helps change this country's perspective on some of its most valuable workers. So let's welcome Saket to the show so that he can tell us more. Saket, thank you so much for coming on Immigrant Leave. Great to be here with you, Sadia. Thank you for inviting me. I love your show. I am so excited to have you on this show, and I am reading the book 
a lot of my listeners know I'm a slow reader, but it's such a riveting account of deceit, resilience, vulnerability. There are so many elements that I want to talk about. The book basically follows the story or the experiences of 500 immigrant workers who came from India to work in the U.S. in 2006. And I want to start by quoting the ad that was placed in newspapers in India for these jobs. So here's the ad, and I quote, Migrate to USA on green card slash permanent residence visa in California slash New Orleans, welders, structural fitters, fabricators, marine engine fitters. Job guarantee provided for two to three years. Earn from 4,000 to 5,000 per month permanent lifetime in USA for self and family, unquote. So Saket, I want you to take it from here and give us an overview of the situation you share in The Great Escape. What is this story about? Well, the story starts in New Orleans in 2006 um, when I get a mysterious midnight phone call from a man who tells me he needs help, but he won't tell me anything else. That was the night of my 29th birthday. I was a labor organizer in New Orleans. I ran a small nonprofit that protected the rights of workers who were rebuilding the Gulf Coast after Hurricane Katrina. Hmm. Katrina's flooding had turned the U.S. Gulf Coast into the world's largest construction site. And the repairs were being conducted largely by immigrants who had come from all over the United States and some parts of Latin America. So workers would call me, you know, my number would circulate, they would call me. But this man who left me a message, he left me a message consisting of two words. All he said was my name. But the way he said it told me he was from India because he pronounced Saket, the way it's meant to be pronounced uh, in India. I'm from Delhi. And so when he called back, I immediately picked up even though I was busy running a stakeout operation, trying to save this guy's nephew, when all of a sudden the phone rang, when I talked to him later that night, he told me he was from India. He had just arrived into the U.S. Gulf Coast, but he refused to tell me anything else. He led me to a large group of Indian men. It turned out he was one of 500 Indian men who had been trafficked to the Gulf Coast. Recruiters had gone to India on behalf of a large company. They had run this ad and they had promised these men green cards and good jobs. The catch was they had to pay $20,000 a piece. Now, $20,000 in India is generations of savings. So these men sold homes. They sold ancestral land. They put their homes on the hawk and they borrowed from sometimes violent moneylenders at 17, 18% interest. So they came to the United States expecting an American dream. It turned out they were dropped into an American nightmare. There were never any green cards. There were never any good jobs. They were living in a labor camp on company property in atrocious conditions, working round-the-clock shifts, living 24 people to a room, eating frozen rice for breakfast, lunch, and dinner, and even having to pay $1,000 in rent for the privilege of living in that labor camp. Sakit, as I said, I'm reading this book. 
And our listeners will have to read the book to understand what was really happening to the workers. There's so much nuance. There are so many details that we may not even have time to discuss here. But something that I want to talk about, I want to go back to the recruiters, the trio who basically conceptualized and executed this plan where they made false promises of green card. Most of what was promised in the ad was never materialized, right? Talk to me about these three people who are at the center of this fraudulent conspiracy or this fraudulent act that happened. Sure, yeah. So the company that got this skilled workforce was a Gulf Coast oil rig builder called Signal International. But the recruiters are really fascinating. This chief recruiter was a New Orleans-based attorney, a liberal attorney. He considered himself the immigrant's best friend. He was an idealist. Hmm. He's somebody who, when he was young, when he was a kid in Louisiana, his parents took in a pair of refugee teenagers from Cuba. And so this young man, Malvern, from a young age, he looked up to, literally looked up to these refugees. You know, they were teenagers. They were bigger than him. They taught him how to play baseball. And this man, Malvern, told me as I was writing this book that around the dinner table, the conversations that he would have with these refugees in English and Spanish, you know, halting conversations stayed with him for a long time. So Malvern grew up really wanting to help immigrants, wanting to help strivers, as he called them, come to the United States. But then Hurricane Katrina came and crushed the town where Malvern had a house and flung his family into a financial and personal crisis. And I think that's what made Malvern use his powers, his immigration law knowledge, to craft a scheme that he sold to an American oil rig builder. Now, Malvern's partners in this were a Mississippi cop who had turned into a labor broker, who knew all the oil companies, and an Indian recruiter who was the scion of an Indian recruitment dynasty. This is a man who had recruited to send workers to the Middle East again and again, to Abu Dhabi, to Dubai, to Bahrain, and was now bringing people to the United States with Malvern. So that was the trio. Sakit, I want to talk a little bit more about Malvern because as I was reading about him in your book, I just couldn't help myself but think about this character out of a movie, right? So this is quintessential white saviorism. This person wants to bring immigrants, help them realize the American dream. In your opinion, how much of that notion of white saviorism played into what he was doing and how he behaved? Well. I got this phone call in the middle of the night and went on a hunt for these labor camps. At that time, I knew nothing about the workers and I knew nothing about Malvern Burnett. You know, when I found these workers, one of them, a worker named Rajan, became my partner and started explaining the trio and the parts of the scheme. I think that to some extent, yes, you're right, that there's something of a white savior in the character and in the story. This is a man who regards himself as an idealist and wants to save the people who toil away, in his mind, in the third world and bring them to the United States. Right. On the other hand, the complexity here and the important thing to remember is that it is actually true that for these welders and pipefitters, for these people in India, the promise of a green card is the migrant workers' holy grail. 
Yeah, absolutely. Prices are rising in India. It's not possible for these men to provide for their families on an Indian salary. So they've already left India 10 years before, 15 years before, to go back and forth between the Middle East and India. You know, they're trying to save their own families. Now they're older. Their parents are older. One young man, Ebi Raju, came to the United States because he realized, coming back from Bahrain after five years, that his parents couldn't afford to retire. So what Malvern and the other recruiters offered, whatever the motivation was, the reason it was a valuable proposition was because their family economies did need a higher form of income. Not to mention that, you know, the United States was the one place in their minds that a migrant worker could live with their family and work to provide for them. Hmm. So it was to stop these cycles of perpetual exile. But that didn't materialize, right? Did they end up getting the green card that was promised in the ad? Well, when I met them, they were on temporary visas. This is an important point. A lot of people don't realize that all of these workers came on H2P and they were not undocumented at the time that they arrived in the U.S. Can you talk a little bit about H2B visa and can it even be transferred or converted into a green card? Right. The first time I met these workers was in a church. This was a clandestine meeting. I was expecting to meet three people. When I opened the door of the church, it turned out to be 100 people. These were 100 of the 500 men who had been brought. And what I learned from one of them was they expected green cards, but had been brought in on temporary visas called H-2B visas. And I explained at the time, there's no way for these temporary visas to turn into green cards. They had been sold a lie. And yes, they were documented at the time, but temporary visas only last eight months. And they continued to work for the company in order to pay off their debts at home, moneylenders that they had borrowed money from. And so that was the dilemma of the workers. They were working for this company. Temporary visas tied them to one employer. They couldn't even work for anyone else. And they were under so much debt that the company didn't even need a lock and key. They were just being held captive by the debt servitude because they had to send back payment. So that's what they described to me. Once I understood what they were going through, I explained to Rajan, to my main contact, that the only way to get out of this was to escape from the labor camp mm. and to fight. So that's what we did. We engineered the great escape at the center of the book. I won't give anything away for your listeners, but it involved a lot of wild turkey whiskey and uh, a lot of um, flavored cigars as brides for the security guards that were surveilling the workers. And uh, Sadia, we created a um, an elaborate but completely fictitious wedding that gave us the pretext to ferry 500 men out of the labor camps. Sankit, in terms of the story itself, and I don't want to give away too much, but there are so many different elements, corruption being one, surveillance being another. What surprised me was how ubiquitous corruption is in American system, whether it's immigration enforcement or law enforcement. Talk to me a little bit about the kind of corruption that you saw once the workers escaped and what impact did it have on getting justice for all these workers? Yeah, Sadia, like you, we didn't expect it either. Hmm. 
I came to the United States as a foreign student on a full scholarship. And when I arrived in the United States, had faith in U.S. institutions. These 500 men perhaps had more faith in American institutions than most people born in the United States. And so when they were inside the labor camp, they were angry at having been held in forced labor, enslaved by an American company. But when they escaped, they believed that the U.S. government would just come to their defense. The strategy was really clear. We were going to have the men escape from the labor camp and then file a criminal complaint to the Department of Justice. Now, the law in the U.S. includes protections for people who have faced human trafficking. Hmm. We allege that these men were victims of human trafficking, and that would unlock legal protections, including for undocumented immigrants. In order to keep them in the U.S. and have them as witnesses, there are victim protections that fall into play. Right. And we thought that within a week, the Department of Justice would send an investigator, open an investigation, and give people temporary work permits so that they could work and stay in the U.S. as witnesses. That was our expectation. So, Saket, that was an option, right? They could be granted temporary work visas, and then they could continue to work. That's right. That was the law, not just an option, but that was the expectation. Hmm based on the law. What we didn't know at the time was that there were agents deep in the federal government with their own corrupt ties to the company and with their own personal motivations to undercut our DOJ investigation. So the men were expecting that we would get these protections as soon as you know the workers escaped. A week went by, nine days went by, the Department of Justice didn't materialize, no investigator came. We got a phone call from the FBI, which would have been appointed law enforcement officials in charge of the investigation. But the FBI after that disappeared. And so after nine days of hiding 500 men in a hotel, in a hotel, 500 brown men in Louisiana, hidden in a hotel, I explained to the men that we needed to march. And in order to march, everybody needed to come out as undocumented. This was a, an experience I went through. I had been undocumented and came out. I explained that they needed to tell their friends and families and then tell the media and march boldly towards the DOJ, the Department of Justice. And the men thought, well, that's fantastic. In their particular English, they called it the Department for Justice. Right. And said, well, it's right there in the name. As soon as we get to Washington, we'll get justice. We'll get justice. <laughs> and the march took 14 days. But as we were marching, we didn't know that there were corrupt agents inside the federal government acting against us. That came to light slowly. First, we were surveilled on the way to Washington, D.C., and, you know, we uncovered the surveillance. Then in Washington, D.C., our campaign unraveled and the Department of Justice continued to back away rather than come forward and help. And it turned out that corrupt immigration and customs enforcement officials or ICE agents, had taken over the investigation huh. in order to protect themselves. And they could do that? They could just take over any DOJ investigation? Well, they did it, obviously, as the result of a fight and as an act of self-preservation because of the role they themselves played in helping the company keep these men in forced labor. They decided to commandeer the investigation. So suddenly we were up against agents of ICE that had power 
over the investigation and that were not trying to get justice for the workers, but trying to get the workers and me defined as criminals. Hmm. Rather than come forward with protections for trafficking victims, they were trying to incarcerate and deport the men for their own purposes. But justice was eventually served, right? As I was reading your book, what I really liked about the narrative is how you have humanized those stories. You've talked about individual workers from Hemant to Sabulal to Joseph, Shaket, and so many more, right? And I felt a connection to them. And you basically destigmatized immigrant workers in America through this story. I want to know where are those workers now, 17 years after they came to the U.S.? Can you update us on what's happening with them right now? Yeah, absolutely. You know, what I wanted to do with this book was many, many immigrant stories and remarkably told immigrant stories start on the day the immigrant arrives in the United States, whether it's on a flight or across the border, as if an immigrant's life starts the day they immigrate. But these men had full lives in India, as we all do in our home countries, right? Right. And so I wanted to start in India with their love stories, their family stories, you know, the soap operas of their lives before they read the advertisement. And that also created a context for why the promise of a green card was so appealing. And these were all men in their 20s, young men, you know. Uh, remember what you were like? You know, what I was like? Huh. We were young and, and, and naive. <laughs> and naive, absolutely. So there's a young man named Ebi Raju. And uh, this 20-something guy, he's just come back from Bahrain from five years working as a migrant worker. He's in India. And his biggest problem before he becomes trafficked to the U.S. is that his mother is trying to drag him into an arranged marriage. Hmm. He doesn't want to get married. And then, you know, breaking every protocol, he accidentally winds up on the phone with the woman who is intended to be his bride, he hears her voice and he falls in love with her voice. Oh, wow. He just needs to marry her. But now he has a bigger problem, which is how to afford a wedding and how after the wedding to afford the household expenses of the family because he's not going to be able to earn a living in India. And he sees the ad. He sees the promise of an American dream and an American income. And he decides the way out is for him to go to the United States and his wife to join him. So he goes. Now, he's promised that his wife is going to join him in nine months, right? She's pregnant when he leaves. And so he thinks he's going to meet his newborn son in nine months. Mm -hmm. But it turns out that because Ebi is being held in forced labor in the United States, he doesn't meet his wife and child for the next three years. So there's a scene in the book at the end when he's reunited with his wife and his child in the Atlanta airport. They embrace. His son comes into his arms. Well, that son is now all grown up. <laughs> I went back to India with Ebi last year to visit his family. He's a local hero now because he's the one who made it to the United States of America. Huh. There's another young man named Hemant. Hemant was in love with his high school sweetheart in Delhi, the same place I'm from. And he wanted to have a love marriage, as they call it. Well, the problem was his high school sweetheart was from a family that was from a station several rungs above him. Hmm in uh, Delhi society. So the girl's father told him, Hey, man, you want to marry my daughter? 
go become somebody. Well, Heyman thought, what better thing to become than an American? Than to realize the American dream. Dream, exactly. And then he would come back a hero and ask for his high school sweetheart's hand in marriage. So Heyman goes, but then has to wait three years before being reunited and eventually before marrying his high school sweetheart. So those were the stories. And the men now, you know, are are all here. I mean, it's I don't think it's too much of a spoiler to say that this is an immigrant story that ends well. I'm a big believer that all immigrant stories are love stories. And this is a love story that actually ends not in separation, but in jubilant, beautiful reunion. And the workers right now are all citizens. They're fully Americans. Shokat, one of the workers in the book, called me the other day and said, Saketji, which is, you know, what the workers call me. Saketji, my campaign is over. <laughs> that campaign was over 10 years ago. I mean, we just wrote a book about it. So what, what do you mean the campaign is over? And Shokat said, no, 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 no. I just won my campaign because my daughter just got into five medical schools. Oh, wow. My campaign is finally over. And I said, well, congratulations, Shokat. You're, you're right. Your, your campaign just ended. Saket, the kind of experience that you have and what you've seen as an activist, I wonder if you believe in the American dream or America being a meritocracy, or at least the dream that's fed to immigrants. That's a good question. You know, I came with my own dream. I arrived in the United States to study. I got a full scholarship. I came to the University of Chicago, to study theater. In fact, my parents are probably the only parents in the 5,000-year-long history of Indian civilization to let their kid come to the United States to study theater. How were you able to convince them? You know, they have always been very, very understanding. But when I announced that I was going to become an English literature major and study theater, they were about as distraught as they had ever been in their lives. <laughs> I'm not surprised. <laughs> so, yeah. And, you know, that was my dream. And then I became undocumented. I missed an immigration deadline. I didn't think much of it until 9-11 happened and the dream fell apart. You know, many immigrants, including me, we lost our foothold. I think that's a lot of how this dream goes. You come, you work towards an extraordinary goal, things fall apart, and you have to pull them back together. So I'm a believer in American dreams, not in one homogenous American dream. You're right. And there are different iterations of that. And some may be more challenging or dark than others, right? I don't see the universality of the American dream, though. That to me is a myth. Well, I think in this particular story, a group of very self-interested recruiters went to India and sold a perfectly false, 100% fraudulent American dream of green cards, which would never have possibly come true to a group of people who really needed it. I think more generally, around the world, America still means something. And I think it means whatever people feel is lacking in their lives. People put their own emotions and imagination to fill in the meaning of America. It can mean economic security or intellectual freedom or... An adventure. An adventure for some of the men in this book, right? Or it can mean political freedom, right? The chance to live out your values without punishment, retaliation. 
I think there's a deep truth in that promise too, though, because despite its imperfections, the United States is still a place where a lot of people can fight to improve it. Hmm. Despite Supreme Court rulings, the rollback of Roe v. Wade, you know, challenges to birthright citizenship, a political framework that we found in the last few election cycles is far more fragile than we thought. The fact is you can still fight here together collectively to improve it. And so I think of the American dream or the American dreams that we have not as something to be granted, but something to fight for and preserve and make more robust for the next people who come. And for immigrant workers, that's particularly salient. Mm. I think that we sometimes treat immigrants as if we want their labor, but we don't want them to belong in the society that they're building. Mm. But it is still possible for them to fight to belong, for us all to fight to belong. And I think that's what's special about America. I like what you just said. But at the same time, I just want to push back a little. Why do we have to fight? Why do newcomers have to fight, right? Why don't the institutions and the systems and structures change to accommodate and be more welcoming to the newcomers? Well, I would argue that they have improved a great deal. You think so? I think so. I think that there have been changes and improvements But those improvements have come because people have said, you know, the way things are right now is an affront to my dignity and I'm going to improve things. I'm going to fight. So we had the Chinese Exclusion Act, right? And then there were challenges to the Chinese Exclusion Act, Hmm. right? We had post 9-11 policies, right? And then there have been challenges to post 9-11 policies. Hmm. I think there's always been a set of people for whom America is for the few. And then there's a set of people for whom America is for the many. And those of us for whom America is for the many, you know, the trade unionists, the taxi drivers, the farm workers, the Catholics who run the homeless shelters. These are the people for whom America has always been a broad, inclusive proposition a house with many doors where people can come in. And we've had to improve every institution. And so, yes, on days that I feel tired, I also say the same thing. Why do we have to fight for this? And then, you know, it turns out that each time a newcomer fights for something, that newcomer lends an extraordinary new perspective that would never have existed. So the whole country is enriched when new waves of immigrants fight for something. They enrich America each time. I like that. I really like that. Sankit, there's something else I wanted to ask you in terms of the ad. I'm going back to the ad. Now, this ad was placed in newspapers, mostly in Kerala, in India, right? What connection, if any, do you see between this need for cheap labor and non-Western countries? Do you think this ad could have been placed in a European country? Well, it's no coincidence at all that this ad got placed in India. This is a country that produces a vast number of highly skilled workers and a country in which those workers are paid so little that the possibility of earning a little more is good enough reason to pay up, get on a plane and move, right? And live separate from your family for years and years just so you can provide for them. So it's not a coincidence that this happened in India. I think the United States and industry in the United States 
has always relied on free or cheap labor. And it's this addiction to free and cheap labor that's close to the root of all of America's problems. First, a cheap labor pool through the importation of enslaved peoples from Africa, then the indenturing of those people and sourcing people from, you know, the newly created prison system through Jim Crow and criminalization of those people. You know, meanwhile, lots of use of Native Americans as well for labor. In the years that followed after abolition, you had a program called the Bracero Program, where a million laborers came from Mexico expecting good wages and pensions. Those pensions were never paid. You know, the Bracero Program was ended as a national disgrace by Congress. But then guest worker programs were created, right? And so this follows a pattern. I think that the vast stretches of the world are inhabited by people who dream of leaving their economic circumstances and going to someplace better, right? Earning better, doing better, bringing their kids, born and unborn, to better circumstances. But in the receiving countries, in the United States, for example, that means you can get very skilled labor at very low wages. And, and that's really a problem that I and many activists, you know, we're all trying to solve. Do you think there could be an added layer of perceived lack of accountability if labor force was coming from countries like India, Pakistan, Bangladesh versus a Western European or even an Eastern European country? Because the conditions that these workers were subjected to, the squalid living conditions and working conditions, I wonder if subconsciously recruiters or employers feel that they could get away with mistreatment of workers if they came from certain parts of the world? Well, in this particular instance, for some of the people at the center of the story, it wasn't even that subconscious. Company officials would say, well, a labor camp in Mississippi where people are living 24 to a room on company property and paying $1,000 rent to do that, that's bad, sure, for American-born people. But for people born in India, that's an improvement over what they have at home. That was the picture of India, right, in the minds of some of these company officials. And that's a very Orientalist view, right? Oh, deeply. It's deeply prejudiced. It's a deeply racist view. It's a deeply uneducated view. People held this view who had never been to India. So it's not clear where they got that impression of India. Right. At the same time, you know, you have in the story highly sophisticated people who went many times to India, you know, or who were from India, who also participated in this scheme, who knew how bad the Mississippi labor camps were, but who still brought them in and profited from the scheme. So I think there's still at the end of it all a profit motive. Now, in terms of accountability, you know, I think that when it comes to immigrant workers, I've seen a lot of these recruiters and companies say, well, these workers will never come forward to complain because they'll be too afraid to be sent back to where they're from. Hmm. I think that's one of the ways in which accountability is undercut. Saket, I want to ask you something which is not related to the book. But as you said, you originally came here to pursue writing and you wanted to be a theater director, right? Are theater and creative skills or art skills still part of who you are? 
Do you engage with that part of yourself at all? Oh, yes, very much so. Yeah, I think of organizing and activism as going really deeply hand in hand with theater and a lot of what I learned as a writer and a theater director. It really starts with storytelling. When you learn how to make a story on stage so compelling that people don't want to stop watching, Hmm. you learn these fundamentals. And I translate these fundamentals into my activism every day. I listen for the deep stories of people, not their talking points, you know, and not what they think is their truth, but their deeper stories, what made them, what made them come to the United States, what made them leave their families, what made them go through their most difficult times. So that deep listening produces the kind of story material that is material for theater. I mean, they could be on stage. They're in a different kind of stage. They're on the American stage talking to Congress or at a press conference. In writing this book, I drew on a lot of my theater education because I decided to write a book that was not an issue book. This is not an argument for or against certain kinds of immigration systems. This is fundamentally a political thriller and a love story and a detective novel, except it's nonfiction and it's all true. It involves, as characters, friends and lovers and brothers and fathers and sons and enemies and opponents and a lot of food and a lot of passion. And so I also decided to tell the story in a way that drew on a lot of my theater training. Saget, the story, as you said, it unravels the dark underbelly of immigration enforcement in the U.S., right? We've used terms like labor camps, human trafficking, labor trafficking. I wonder what the response has been so far. Have you experienced any skepticism? Are people surprised that these things exist, happen and thrive in the modern day America, the land of the free? You know, that's a really good question, Sadia. I have been very surprised at the overwhelming response. People have been taken aback by the book, but not taken aback by the circumstances necessarily. People say all the time, my God, this happened recently. I can't believe it happened recently. And gosh, they had to escape from a labor camp and how far they had to go. Three years hiding, being hunted, living like fugitives participating in marches to Washington and hunger strikes, all to get what they were owed in the first place. So yes, there has been that reaction. But right after that, there's a much deeper reaction. And the true surprise has been at the fact that the story is told so in-depth, right? that the characters are so real, that I know so much about them, not just the immigrants, the protagonists, but their opponents as well, the recruiters, the ICE agents, the company officials the DOJ investigator, that I was able to get as much material as I could. I think people are, yes, surprised at the outset at the story itself, but I've found people much more surprised at how the story is told and how deeply the story is told. And I think that's very telling because if you think about it, we often hear immigrant stories really in the news. Right. And in the news, immigrants aren't people. Immigrants are a statistic. Immigrants are a problem. Immigrants are a headline, right? Exactly. Immigrants are the reason the Republicans are having a press conference at the border. But we don't get real-life stories of immigrants as deep, full, complex human beings. And I think that's what's been more surprising. And there is so much nuance in your book. Immigrants are not portrayed as good or bad. They are just human. 
with all the messiness, vulnerability, weakness, strength, resilience, impatience of being a human, right? And that's what I always say when people speak of the need to humanize immigrants. Well, actually, there's no need to humanize people who are already human. All you have to do is see. Rather than humanizing, what we need to do is recognize. And let us be ourselves. Accept the good, the bad, and the ugly, because that's what human experience is. That's right. Should we expect a movie in the future? Well, I'll just say that I feel like I've already been living a movie. <laughs> I lived this experience of this book for 10 years, and then it took me four years to write it. And all 14 of those years were like being in an extraordinary movie. And the great thing about that movie was that every single one of the characters in the book and in life, every single one of these men believed they were the star of their own movie. So I feel like I've had an extraordinary movie already playing around me, full of people in love and their lovers and corrupt cops and people carrying out a vast conspiracy. But yes, I think it would be an extraordinary film and I'm very curious to see if that happens. In the end, if you were to define America in a word or a sentence, how would you do that? I would define America as promise. Hmm. And promise can mean a lot of different things. Promise can be what you peg onto America. Promise can be what America means to you. But I think overwhelmingly, America is promise for the men in the book, for so many people in my life, and for so many people I meet through my organizing there's still a sense that there's a promise to be kept by us and by the country we're in. I like that. Saket, where do you want people to buy this book? Are you okay if they bought it on Amazon or do you have a small bookstore that you want them to go to? Well, you can buy the book anywhere books are sold, as they say. So if you have a favorite independent bookstore, I have mine. Please go to your bookstore and buy it contribute to their sales, keep them in business. We love our independent bookstores. You know, if you're more comfortable buying on bookshop.org or Amazon, absolutely do that. And the more important thing is read the book and tell a friend to read the book, but buy it wherever you feel comfortable. Thank you so much, Saki. This was so good. Thanks, Sadia. Really appreciate being with you. I love your show. You carry out such wonderful, thoughtful conversations. I'm so thrilled to have been among them. So, how was the interview? I hope you got some clarity on the questions I asked in the beginning. One thing that I will point to is the question about immigration, is a human right or not, is an important one. Think about how we treat people who come to this country, whether immigrant workers, immigrants in other fields, undocumented immigrants, refugees, asylum seekers. How do we create narratives around that? What does media tell us? And why are we so skeptical about the newcomers? I hope you get to invest time in this book. Buy it, read it, share it with people. 
If you like this episode, share our conversation with a friend, a family member who may benefit from it. This episode was produced by me, Sadia Khan, written by Michaela Strather and me. The editorial review was done by Shay Yu and our editor for this episode, as always, is Hazik Ahmed Farid. Until next time, take care.